Hebrews chapter 10. And we're going to aim ourselves at verse 19. Read through verse 25, and then we'll bring this little passage to a a close this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to gather, to come before you and to open your word. Coming before you and opening your word is, is hearing what you would say to us this morning. It's hearing your voice that has been given to us in written form. We thank you that the scriptures have been read this morning and for the significance of all of them. We thank you for feeding us and nurturing us, and we ask that you would help us now as we study uh, for a little time. Open our eyes and open our hearts. Increase our faith. Convict us of sin if there is sin to be convicted of. Encourage us where we struggle. We thank you for this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. <coughs> the author writes, beginning in verse 19, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near." Just a a moment of review of what we've already seen over the last few weeks. The first couple of verses here tell us that Jesus, by his blood, by his, his cross, through his death, has opened up a new and living way for us to enter the presence of God. The old way was blocked within the physical temple by the veil. Jesus, at the moment of his death, caused that veil to be physically torn in the temple, and it was never repaired. It was never put back with a door that we could pass through. He created a new way for us to come before the Lord. And it's a fulfillment, really, of his statement in John 4 to the woman of Samaria that he spoke to at the well when he said, God is looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth the day is coming he says and is now here when you will not worship in jerusalem or in mount gerizim in samaria but you will worship the father in spirit and in truth and that is that new and living way that jesus opened for us and then the text itself gives us three clear and straightforward points of application the first point of application is let us draw near in verse 20 in verse 22 the, the sense of that simply is, since Jesus has opened up a door for you, go through it. If you don't go through it, there's no point in having the door. If you don't go through it, the other two points of application make no sense. The second point of application is, let us hold fast the confession 
of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. God has given us every reason to believe him. He has fulfilled every promise. He is fulfilling every promise. Every promise he has ever made will be fulfilled. Not one will be lost. Not one will be broken. Not one will be set aside. It takes time. He does it in his time, in what the scripture calls the, 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 the fullness of time. And we have to wait for his time, but his time is always perfect. The third point of application that we're going to look at this morning is this simple statement. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds in verses 24 and 25. So I just want to begin with that, that nugget of application that we are to motivate one another to love and good deeds. Let's make sure that we understand this. This word stimulate, your Bible might say stir up or spur on or even provoke, is a fairly strong word in Scripture. It has the idea of provoking or inciting. It's used in the book of Acts in chapter 15. Paul and Barnabas had been traveling together and ministering together, but they came to a disagreement over their, their, the next step of ministry that they would take. Part of that was over which way are we going to go. Part of that was over should this young man, John Mark, come with them. Paul didn't want John Mark to come with them because he had abandoned them. He was, I think he was probably in his mid or late teens. He was a nephew of Barnabas. They had ended up in a dangerous situation, and he went home. And Paul said, that's fine, no harm, no foul, but he can't come with us. What we're doing is not a game. We can't go out and hold the hand of children while we do what we do in these very dangerous places. Barnabas said, no, he has to go. And, and what Acts 15.39 says, they came to such a sharp disagreement that they parted ways. That's this word. They, they were provoked. They were incited to this response. So that, that tells us, and it's being used positively, by the way, in Hebrews 10, but what that tells us is that stimulating one another to love and good works, motivating one another to love and good works, isn't simply patting somebody on the back and saying, good job. There's more energy behind it. There's, there's, more, there's more power behind it. It's a significant thing that we do. Now, obviously, it's really encouraging when somebody is walking well with the Lord, when they hold consistently to biblical truth, when they show evidence of ongoing transformation in their lives, when they love Jesus, they're growing in holiness, they're, they're living increasingly for the sake of the glory of God. Those are really wonderful things. It's never the purpose of God that we would just cave in under opposition. It feels often for us that we're swimming upstream, but we're swimming toward heaven. It's, it's a place worth going to. But the truth is that in spite of the beauty of faithfulness and the beauty of strength and the beauty of, of this powerful determination that sometimes we have, it's also true that most of us at one time or another find that it's hard to maintain that intensity and passion. We get tired. We get discouraged. We get worn out. We face opposition and, and circumstances in our world. I, I just, for the sake of full disclosure, all the stuff that's going on now with the abortion battle and there's, there's racism battles within the church and the whole woke thing and the social justice movement, it is wearing on me. It's wearing on me. And I've come to the point where I've just, I'm starting to turn that stuff off. I'm not reading the articles. I'm not paying attention to it. 
because it's all based on how bad everything is now. Everything is just terrible right now. And it ignores the fact that there is life coming, that eternity is coming. We've got to stay in some of these battles, but if we do so with the, to the exclusion of everything else, we start to flag. We start to lose our way and our momentum. So the Spirit of God is not ever going to let his people go. He has promised to keep us and to preserve us, and he often works through other Christians to help us. He inhabits us. He takes up residence within us. He indwells us. He makes us his temple. So not surprisingly, as he gifts us to work in other ways, he gifts us to lift one another up and to bless one another. And we're to seek to motivate each other, to stimulate each other, to provoke each other to love and good deeds, to greater Christ-likeness to greater faithfulness. This is something we're all called to do. It's not the exclusive work of some. It is something that we can all do, and we can all do it today, and we can all receive it today. It's a blessing to receive it, and it's a blessing to give this. That's the basic element of what we're being told here. Now, as I look at these two verses, I I see three points of detail, and there are more, but there are three that really stand out to me that I think uh, give a a clarity to what we're to do. And so let's talk about those. The, The first one of these is this word, consider. He doesn't just say, stimulate one another to love and good works. He says, consider how to do this. This word, consider, in the Greek means to carefully consider. It means to think about, think well about, to ponder. We're to ponder how to best motivate someone else. And that really only makes sense because one size doesn't fit all. We're not the same. We don't respond to the same motivations. We don't have the same interests. I can give you a biblical example of this. Paul's letter to Titus is three chapters long. And Paul comes out, bam, 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 bam. He hits the ground running. He doesn't let up. It's very intense. They're brief, very strong statements in the book of, of Titus. The first, ten cha- the first 10 verses, rather, of Titus chapter 2, Paul deals with older men, older women, younger women, younger men, Titus himself, and bondservants in 10 verses. He, it's just bullet-pointing. It's very authoritative. It's very straightforward and clear. He pours it out in this rapid fire fire style without expanding on things very much. Paul wrote two letters to Timothy that make up ten chapters. And in those chapters, he does say many of the same things to Timothy that he says to Titus, but he also speaks to Timothy much more tenderly. He calls him a spiritual son. He encourages him not to be afraid. He encourages him to stir up his own gift, not give in to a spirit of fear. He explains much more. There's a, there's, they're different men. Titus and Timothy were different men in different situations, and they had different needs. And Paul very appropriately treats them differently. It just makes sense that we would try and understand somebody to know what motivates them, to know what their need actually is. We have to be careful as we do this not to manipulate. We want to motivate. We don't want to manipulate. The, the difference, I think, is that manipulation is about trying to get somebody to follow 
my dream for their life. Manipulation is when I try and get you to do what I think you should do. Motivation is what I'm urging you to keep your faith in the Lord strong and to pursue what He wants you to do. It's not about me. It's about you, and it's done for the glory of God. How do we motivate without manipulation? Paul makes a statement in Ephesians chapter 4 where he's speaking about the purpose of the, of the, the pastoral ministry and the teaching of the Word of God. It, he says it's for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And then he says, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. That's manipulation. That's manipulation. It's the trickery of men who keep the doctrines moving around and bouncing down so you can never quite land. It's those who who have deceitful plans and they use craftiness to try and bend people to their will. And Paul says, instead of doing that, what do we do? We speak the truth in love. We speak the truth in love. We speak the truth in love. We don't use craftiness or trickery or deception. We simply say this is what's true. And we do it with as much love as we can get to bear. The question is not here, how can I get this person to do what I want them to do? But how can I spur spur this person on to greater Christ-likeness and greater faith in the Lord and greater trust and greater joy and greater peace? The the second detail that I see is the, the, uh, the necessity of unity in the body. And I see this in the phrase in the first part of verse 25, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some. Every Christian needs every Christian. All of us need all of us. The New Testament letters are filled with one another's, like serve one another, forgive one another, bear with one another, be devoted to one another, accept one another, build up one another, especially love one another. The fact that they're one another's means that they're mutual. These are not one-way, uh, one-way efforts, one-way acts of service. It's not that some people have the specialty of accepting others, and some people have the the specialty of serving others, and some people have the specialty of forgiving. We are all to accept. We are all to forgive. We are all to serve. We are all to love. It's the mutual nature of what it means to be within the body of Christ, what it means to be His church. Philippians 2 gets at this when when Paul says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Those who forsake our own assembling together are forsaking the one another's of Scripture. Because they're removing themselves from the gathering of the family of God. They handicap their own walk because nobody can speak to them. 
And they injure others, frankly, because nobody gets to hear from them. It just strikes me that we can spur one another on or we can spurn one another, but we can't do both. We can spur one another on or we can spurn one another, but we can't do both. There are many genuine Christians, truly saved, they truly know the Lord, who live in isolation. They've made the decision to forsake the assembling of the church. Now, let me be really clear here. We're not talking about people who are involuntarily absent. People who are facing illnesses. Um, Our sister Pam. Gary is recovering from surgery. Those are involuntary absences. Sometimes there are financial issues come, that come into play. It'd be really nice if, if everybody could work a 9-to-5 job Monday through Friday, but the reality is, is that's not reality. There are people who have to work on Sunday. We have people in our own fellowship who have to work on Sunday. This isn't rebuking them. This isn't speaking to them. Dorothy's brother, Maurice, spent years and years and years on the mission field. And often those in overseas missions have no opportunity to be with a church. Hopefully there's an opportunity to gather with a couple of believers, but that's actually not the same as the church. And there are missionary couples that we've known, families that we've known who have served in places like Kyrgyzstan and India who are there by themselves. It's a mom and dad and three kids and they're alone. They're alone. They're not being rebuked here. This is talking about people who have made a deliberate decision to simply forsake the gathering of the body. Now, this word forsake implies responsibility and and obligation. Last year, uh, about a year ago, Grace and I took a a road trip. Uh, We ended up in New Hampshire where I attended a, a preaching conference. And on the way, uh, we went into New York City. We went to Central Park. We had lunch there, and we walked around. As you're walking through New York City, if, if you've never been there, and you walk through New York City, you see people drunk and passed out in doorways. It's just a reality. It's a sad truth of any major city. I've never seen it like I've seen it in New York. And we walked by a number of those people. We saw them, we took note of them, we kept on walking, and when we drove out of the city, we didn't take one of them with us. Did we forsake them? No, because we have no obligation to them. We've made no commitment to them. What if in the middle of Central Park, I had let Grace get ahead of me and then snuck away and got in my car and driven out of the city? Would I have forsaken her? Would I have abandoned her? Absolutely. Why? Because I have an obligation to her. She's my daughter. So when the scripture here uses the word forsake, it says we have an obligation to each other. There's an expectation that we will fulfill the one another's for one another. Now, you you might say, now wait a second, I never agreed to that obligation. And that's right, you didn't. You, you, You didn't. That's because it's not optional, and the Lord didn't ask your permission before he put your name on the list. He signed you up. Our daughter Grace is in the, is in the Air Force, and we've learned a new word. 
She learns a lot of new words, I'm sure, in the Air Force. But this is one that we'd never heard before. It's the word voluntold. And she says, yeah, I got voluntold to do this. I said, what does that mean? She says, well, I'm not actually required to, but I have to. It's not an order, but I don't have a choice. We've been voluntold to love one another and serve one another. We've been voluntold to motivate one another to love and good works. Now, if, if you don't like that, all I can do is suggest that you take it up with Jesus when he returns. But in the meantime, I suggest that you trust his purpose in creating the body as he has. Trust him and accept the privilege of being part of this. The, the third detail I want to bring out is this urgency that we have. And we see the urgency at the end of verse 25, all the more as you see the day drawing near. Consider how to stimulate one another to love and good works, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day draw near. The word the day is a reference to the day of the Lord, which encompasses all of the end times events, the rapture of the church, the great tribulation, the second coming, the millennial kingdom, final judgment, entrance into the eternal state. It's all of that. And, and, and the point here is to say we don't stimulate one another in love to good works so that, that people that we know and love can have a good life, can enjoy things, and, and be fulfilled. We do it because the end of all things is coming at us. It's a day closer today than it was yesterday. We don't know when it's going to happen. Nobody knows when it's going to happen. Um, Harold Camping wrote, I don't know how many different books, picking different dates. And people pick different dates for when Jesus will return. Nobody knows. Jesus said nobody knows. Writing a book about when Jesus is going to come back and trying to prove it, when Jesus has already said nobody knows, is like writing a book on, I don't know, how to commit adultery in the church and get away with it. It makes absolutely no sense. Nobody knows, but God knows. He knows. It is at a point in history in in our future, we don't know the date, but he does. And it is coming closer steady. It'll be another day closer tomorrow and another day closer on Tuesday. That's the motivation. See, all of this is going to be over before you know it. All of this will be done before you realize I'm only 58. I'm just a kid. I feel like I'm 18. Actually, I feel like I'm 8 half the time. And some of you are, are, are older than I am. And we won't do a poll, but I, I have a sneaking suspicion that those of you who are older than I am would say, I don't know where the time went. Wasn't it yesterday we got married? I look, at my, I look at my son with his son and, and or my daughter with her daughter, and I think, that's not possible. My daughter's a baby. Where did the time go? The time out in front of us seems to drag on. The time behind us has gone in a, in a snap of a finger. And what he says is, look, we get tired. We get discouraged. We, we, get, we get slogged down with life. 
We get weary. But Jesus is coming back, and all of this is going to come to an end, and there's going to be rewards for those who have been faithful, and there's a, a, a need for the world to understand the glory of God. The darker the world gets, the greater that need is. And we understand that we get tired. Nobody's wrong for getting tired. That's why we've been put together. At least one of the reasons that we've been put together. Paul says this in 2 Timothy or 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 4. I thought it was 2 Corinthians 4. It is, therefore. 2 Corinthians 4:16 through 18. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. That, that phrase at the very beginning of verse 16, therefore we don't lose heart. I lose heart. I lose heart. And I think that at times Paul lost heart. But he regained it. And I regain it. How do we regain it? Well, we, we regain it because the Spirit of God preserves us. Because the Lord grants us his favor and he grants us his blessing and his peace and he he lets us rest and and then he moves us on. And we regain it because he is in other people and those other people might turn to us and say, what you do has eternal significance. You can glorify God today and be a blessing to others. You are not forsaken. You are not abandoned. Jesus is praying for you even now. The Holy Spirit is as well. And he is strengthening you for the battle. And then they take us by the arm and they help us back up on our feet and we go on together. And then in a day or two or a week or or a month, you're going to turn to somebody else and say the same thing. In your moment of weakness, as the body doesn't forsake gathering but gathers together, in your moment of weakness, somebody is going to step up and say, don't lose heart. It's not the same as as saying, don't worry about it, it's going to be okay. To the person going through that dark time, the last thing we want to hear is somebody say, it's okay. It's not okay. What we want to know is that God is in this. What we want to know is that the Lord has not forsaken me and that he is with me. And when those people speak those words to me, it's like I've I've gotten a blood transfusion. And then I have the opportunity to speak those words to someone else. But how can you know if somebody's getting tired if you're not around? And how can somebody strengthen you in your weariness if you're not around? I want to bring this home and and just say this. It's been said that the devil's greatest trick is convincing the world that he doesn't exist. I think one of the devil's greatest tricks in the church is convincing us 
that we're not necessary, that I'm just one person. What I do doesn't matter. I'm just one person. I'll let you in on a little secret. I've got college degrees and I've got a master's degree and I've spent 26 years doing this and I've spent thousands and thousands and thousands of hours studying the scriptures and reading. So I'll let you in on a little secret. Everybody is just one person. When you say, I'm just one person, everybody is just one person. There's not a person in here who's more than one person. Little is much when God is in it. All of us need, all of us. We have the opportunity today to exhort someone to think about who they are, to think about what they're facing, and just think about what we know about them and to say, how do I, how do I just put a little wind in, in her sails? How do I just help boost him along a little bit? And perhaps, perhaps we're in a position today to receive that as somebody else looks at us and just says, I just want to tell you that I see who you are. I admire your strength. Keep trusting the Lord. Keep your hand in his. Don't give up on him. He's not giving up on you. Father, we thank you for your love for us, for your graciousness to us, for your kindness to us. We know that we don't deserve any of that. It comes as a pure gift, but you don't require that we we live in constant guilt over our sins. You have freed us and cleansed our hearts from an evil conscience. You urge us to believe you fully and to trust you completely. And you know how hard that is for us to do. And so you have joined us together as a body, as your church, so that we may do these things for each other and and support one another. And I ask that you show us today how we can do that. And Lord, I even ask that you would give us the humility if we need to hear those words. To to tell somebody else, I'm tired, I'm weary. I need to know that what I'm doing has eternal meaning. We thank you for your love for us and for your kindness to us, for your graciousness. We pray this and ask this in faith in the holy name of Jesus. Amen.